think we're renaming identity and experiences from not being confused to being empowered. Mm-hmm. And, and, and multi-race people are not the problem, as Jessica's been emphasizing, it's the systems. Mm-hmm. The borders are what oppression has created. And our experiences will dismantle those with other people. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Rochelle Pope. Today, we're discussing the experiences of multiracial people on college campuses and the need to provide better resources and services for them with Jessica Harris, Mark Johnston Guerrero, and Charmaine Wijasinga. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of student affairs and higher education. We hope that you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative for the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find us at studentaffairsnow.com on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Now, this episode today is brought to you by Stylus. Visit styluspub.com and use promo code SANOW for 30% off and free shipping. Today's episode is also sponsored by EverFi, the trusted partner for 1,500 colleges and universities. EverFi is the standard of care for student safety and well being, with the results to prove it. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Rochelle Pope. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I'm broadcasting from Williamsville, New York, near the campus of the University at Buffalo, where I serve as the Senior Associate Dean of Faculty and Student Affairs and the Unit Diversity Officer for the Graduate School of Education. I'm also an Associate Professor in the Higher Education and Student Affairs Program. UB is situated on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Haudenosaunee people. Charmaine, Mark, Jessica, thank you for joining me today for this episode of Student Affairs Now, and welcome to the podcast. I was wondering if you could begin um, by telling us a bit about you, your current role, and a bit about your pathway through student affairs and counseling and into the work that you do now. And as you think about your um, current position, what you do now, how did you come to know that this was the work you wanted to do? And what would you like to share about your work and your scholarship and your research interests in higher education? How about if you start us off, Charmaine? Well, thank you. Thank you, Rochelle, for bringing us together and for um, highlighting this topic for folks in higher ed. Um, I'm Charmaine Wijasinger. I use the pronouns she, her, and hers. I live in Del Mar, New York, which is right outside of Albany and on the uh, unceded ancestral homelands of the Haudenosaunee people, Mohican and Mohawk people. Um, I worked in several positions in student affairs at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and I was the Dean of Students at Mount Holyoke College. Since about 1985, I've been a consultant um, working with colleges, universities, not-for-profit organizations, and for-profit organizations on issues of diversity, social justice, and identity. Um, and since about 1992, when I finished my dissertation, um, I've included attention to multiracial topics in that consulting practice. I will say, on as a side, Rochelle uh, Pope was my actually my pilot participant for my dissertation, <laughs> as she and I shared a residence when we were in grad school back in the day. Uh, my writing and teaching, way back. Oh, yeah, way back. <laughs> My writing and teaches focuses on social identity development, which includes multiracial identity, intersectionality, and most recently, I've been exploring for myself um, kind of the macro topics we relied on and the processes we used when we explore identity. Uh, my most recent writing on multiracial identity topics or areas was with the with uh, in the co-edited book that I did with Mark Johnson Guerrero, which I'm sure we will mention later um, or throughout the broadcast, Multiracial Experiences in Higher Ed. Lastly, the uh, thing I will share about myself um, is um, I identify as multiracial, but I didn't always, and that may or may not come up during the presentation. Thank you. Thanks, Charmaine. Um, Jessica, can you go ahead and go next? Sure. Um, I will actually start off where Charmaine left off. And I will also say that I also identify as multiracial, but I did not always identify as multiracial. And I should say too that there are some days that I don't 
identify as multiracial or strongly identify as multiracial. So maybe we can get into that. Um, but to back up a little bit, my name is Jessica Harris and I use she, her, her pronouns. I'm an assistant professor in higher education at UCLA, which occupies the unceded territory of the Gabrielino and Tongva peoples. Um, I am originally from the very white and homogenous city of Portland, Oregon, which I do think is relevant to my racial identity as well as the work that I currently do um, at UCLA. So I went to Penn State for my master's degree in college student affairs and I worked in a black cultural center while I was there. And while I was pursuing my master's degree, I really wanted to be a president of an institution of a university, but also more, more um, uh, short on the timeline is um, a director of a cultural center. But while I was pursuing my master's, I was able to do some research with a professor, Dr. Kim Griffin, and I fell in love with research and the possibilities of change that it could make in education, but also society. So, um, and I should say I fell in love with qualitative research. <laughs> um, so fast forward about three institutions, many states, another degree, and I landed at UCLA and I've been teaching and researching here for about six years. Um, I broadly research race and racism on the college campus. And that has and does include the racialized experiences of multiracial students, faculty and staff. Um, I will say that I don't, I, I kind of stress this, um, and I'm not quite sure why, but I stress that I don't do multiracial identity development work. Rather, I really focus on racism and monoracism and racialization of multiracial individuals and sure how that might influence their identity development and de identity development processes, um, but also other outcomes and experiences. And the final thing I'll say is um, that I came to this research because it was me search. I unwittingly or unknowingly at that time was trying to answer my own questions about my identity, but also I was trying to write myself and my community into existence. Thanks, Jessica. Mark, I could already tell just with two of the introductions, this is gonna be a great conversation. I have so many ideas flying through my head. So. Yeah, thank you. Um... It's hard to go after those two excellent introductions. Uh, so um, hi, everyone. My name is Mark Johnston Guerrero. I use he, him, his, and sha pronouns. Uh, I'm currently an associate chair of the Department of Educational Studies and also an associate professor in the Higher Ed and Student Affairs Program at The Ohio State University, um, which occupies the traditional homeland of uh, the Shawnee, the Miami, the Wyandotte, and Delaware and other indigenous nations. Uh, before I became a faculty member, I worked in several different areas of student affairs, including residential life, multicultural affairs, and academic advising. Um, and so my focus on multiraciality has often been in alignment with uh, the professional aspects of the work, but also uh, personal. As Jessica said, me search, uh, definitely that's where I got my start as a student leader and undergrad um, at Michigan State where I founded a HAPA or mixed Asian student group. Uh, and later when I was a master's student, I advised a more broader multiracial uh, student group. So uh, a, lot, a lot of my work and research has been around fitting, figuring out where I fit in a world that was and continues to be very monoracialized and how uh, my identity and my presence influenced the work I was trying to do with and for students. Yeah, you know, um, when I was listening to Charmaine and Jessica, and I'm wondering if this was your experience um, too, Mark, I didn't hear you say that I, that I identified, they both said I identify as uh, multiracial or biracial, whichever the term they were using at that time, but I didn't always. Now, I know in my experience, I grew up um, biracial. I identified as, as biracial and, um, but I was very, I saw myself, the way I would describe myself was very black identified, but I knew that wasn't the whole story. You know, and I have these uh, stories of how that came. And this is very young. I'm, I'm still talking about in um, elementary and middle school. And I was wondering, you know, like you um, raised that issue a little. And so I'd like to talk about that. 
why didn't you um, always identify as um, multiracial um, if you didn't? And why did you? I mean, how how did you know? You know, to to, to talk about. You know, if you if your experience was different, Mark, um, I want you to speak to your own experience. But for Charmaine and Jessica, you both said that. So tell us a little bit more about that. Cool. I'll start just because I forgot to mention that. But I think I've I don't know when I first heard the term multiracial, but ever since I heard it, I have you know identified with it and live my life as a multiracial person. I think that that can speak to some of how I show up in the world um, mm -hmm. and my physical ambiguity. Um, but also there's some interesting stuff in the research around Asian and, and white people. I'm Filipino and white, uh, maybe identifying more as multiracial and more consistently as multiracial than other uh, people with other racial backgrounds. Uh, and so that's kind of where I'll lead and uh, yeah, it's been fairly consistent that I will identify as multiracial uh, since college. Mm -hmm. I can, yeah, I can jump in. Um, I, lo I love this conversation. <laughs> I also will say that I've kind of stepped, not stepped back, but I've moved on to another research topic in, mm -hmm. in my career, but it's just so lovely to come back and talk about multiraciality because um, it was, it was, that identity was more salient for me when I was doing that research. And so mm -hmm. it's really beautiful that in the beginning it was coming from a lot of pain. And now when I come back and talk about it, it's like just so much joy and love that I have for that identity in this community. Um, but I will say that growing up, like I said, I grew up in a very homogenous white environment. So similar to you, Rochelle, I, I identified as like other because everybody was right, white around me, including my white mother. And I knew I wasn't white, but like no one was talking about race. So then I go to college and people are talking about race and I, I start to think through like, okay, I identify as biracial. Um, and I, I think I strongly identified as that, but was still trying to figure that out. And then once I started to research around that, it was people like Mark and others who also were using the term multiracial. Mm -hmm. And people were saying, you know, I, I started to adopt multiracial because while someone might see me and see my father as a black man and my mother as a white woman and say you're biracial, I think it's such, it, that's just so reinscribing biological norms of race. Mm -hmm. And so spoiler alert, every person is multiracial, right? Like there's no pure racial identity that, that individuals hold. Um, and so I identify as a multiracial woman now uh, strongly. And I will finally say that um, I identify usually depending on context, as a black identified multiracial woman, cisgender mm -hmm. woman. And that is really important for me because I am in some ways claiming that title because I think mm -hmm. people say like, well, if you're multiracial, then you can't be monoracial. Um, and I, I think it's really important to play with those labels and kind of disrupt this idea of, of categories and, and uh, biological race or ideas of, around biological race. Sure, thank you. I think what um, I will tell part of my personal story in a minute, but I think what Jessica has shared and even Mark, it's, it's the whole idea of trying to do this work using the categories that themselves are oppressive. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, and I know um, Rochelle and some of her colleagues talk about that, Susan Jones and I talk about it, even um, uh, Patricia Hill Collins talks about it. it's not either or, it's both and, mm -hmm. but in order for us to have this conversation, we're using racial uh, categories and concepts that um, themselves limit us and limit everybody. So that's the tension, but um, I've grown to like tension a lot. But anyway, um, I, I think some of this is generational. I grew up in the 1960s um, and the 70s, and I was the first um, American born citizen in my family. And so my experience as I claim it um, is very much tied to the immigrant experience and growing up in an all white community in the Northeast. And um, because my sibling, we all look different. My brother and I are tall and darker and have hair like my hair. And my sisters were shorter and they had long hair that just cascaded down their backs. Uh, and so everyone thought we were different things, but for me, I'm pretty much sure everyone thought I was black. And um, when I went to college, even the black students thought I was black. Um, and I think part of it was, it was so much coached in the 60s of black and white uh, in terms of racism, in terms of social justice, in terms of racial justice and movements. There was so much focus there. So um, everyone thought I was. And it's not that I um, really claimed a black identity. I just didn't correct people. 
Mm -hmm. um, and when I did, I got some not so great feedback from fellow grad students when I said my mother's white. Um, and, and I little people would literally say to me, are you telling us you're better than us? So I just sort of like, well, I won't talk about that. And my father's actually, well, my father was Asian. So I'm actually, I'm actually Asian and white, but um, because I was at one time six feet tall and had this complexion and uh, hair out to here in college, most people thought I was black. Um, I started identifying as multiracial after I did my dissertation because I felt like the people who were brave enough to tell me their stories. And these folks identified in all different ways. Um, I interviewed people who were black and white who chose a range of identities and they were a range of ages. And I felt they told me a lot and they shared a lot and they took risks. So in honor of them, I checked the form, the paper form and Mark and I joked about this. When I registered my dissertation on a paper form, I checked two boxes for the first time. And mm -hmm. it wasn't a huge, even now I sometimes think, you know, I mean, theory, I write about theory. I don't apply it a lot to myself, but um, um, so I don't, I don't think it was a huge, <laughs> uh, you know, earth shattering moment for me. But since then I have uh, identified as multiracial and I still think most people think I'm African-American, but things are more um, sophisticated now. So people recognize my last name as being Sri Lankan. Um, think context has shifted. So people in different parts of the country will say, well, this is such a different issue in my sense of the world. So I think as we talk that the shifting context I think plays a huge role uh, in identity development or the experiences of any racial group, but in particular for multiracial people. People can claim to be multiracial now because you can check more than one box. It's part of our culture. It's part of our, our the nuances that we see every day. It wasn't always so. Yeah, we live in a pretty diunital world that says it has to be this or this. You know, I mean, we live in a, I'm, I'm sorry, a, a very dualistic world. It has to be A or B. And um, there's this struggle for diunital, you know, like the pulling together of, of what might seem like opposites. Um, I could sit here with you. I feel like I say this in too many places. I'm just such a nerd. I could just have this conversation, you know, like the entire time and, and to explore this. I think we have some other things I want to also get to, but maybe we can come back to this. And I love this me search, you know, like, and so it's almost like this me conversation as opposed to this um, um, some of the other things, but I thought it might help our viewers if we back up a little and take a, a little broader view and start at the most macro question. And that is, what is it that we, that you most want our audience to know about the experience of, experiences of multiracial students, staff, and faculty on our campuses? What is it that you most want them to know? I'm going to start with you, Jessica, on this one. Yeah, I think what I want people to know or rather remind people to think of when they're thinking of multiracial individuals on the college campus and their experience is that um, it's about larger systems and structures. So I, I very, very vividly remember reading for my dissertation, uh, I was gonna say a few years ago, multiple years ago, many years <laughs> ago. And um, one, one article in Maria, P.P. Roots um, edited volume multiracial experience really stands out to me and it, I can't recall who it was but it basically was like we need to be able to position these experiences in larger systems and structures so that people who are kind of against multiraciality or adding multiraciality to the conversation aren't just kind of saying like oh poor them they don't fit in right and I think that that's true um, and so how are these experiences of not fitting in, of exclusion, actually uh, products of and reproducing and supporting white supremacy and monoracism and racism? And so I think that that's what I would like to remind people or let people know that these experiences are, are designed. Um, they're designed through history, they're designed through policies and procedures, and they're designed to uphold whiteness and white supremacy. Um, and I think that that's just goes for, that goes for a lot of the work that we do in general in the academy is that we need to be looking at the structures and the systems that are reproducing oppression rather than these micro interactions that are happening. Yeah, thank you. How about you, Mark? Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, no, I really love this conversation. And um, yeah, I, I think that it's like, a, yeah, 
always a both and this focus on identity um, and, and the context, right? It's not really an either or. I think Jessica is coming from, there was a period of time where there was a lot of focus on identity and identity development. So what is it about the social structures? But just as we all just kind of introduced ourselves and talked about our own identities, identity development is, is crucial, like is the mediator to the experiences, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we're in these structures, but if somebody who might be multiracial and ancestry doesn't identify as such, they probably will not be affected um, by the experience or have the same experience as somebody who does identify. And so I think that's important to kind of think about the both and that it's important to kind of still understand what's going on in terms of identity for multiracial people um, who might be mixed, who might be um, or not. Uh, so, and then that, that sort of terminology, I think is really important to kind of key in and as well is that um, multiracial, biracial, mixed race, uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic, all of these terms, uh, and then maybe more individualized terms, they are, uh, yes, they are not all the same, uh, especially when we think about our data and the way that institutions might classify anybody who checks two or more races as uh, multiracial. They may not actually identify as multiracial as we've already heard. So I think those are important for us to think about as we think about the group uh, of people we are talking about. Uh, there's still a lot of debate to what extent we, they actually constitute a group. You know, how much groupness is there in mixedness or being multiracial? That's a deep question. I want to get. Um, I want to make sure I ask um, Charmaine. You know what she wants people to know. What are some really important things? So much, but uh, I think this often happens resonates with, with what Mark and Jessica shared too. And um, I too wrestle with the idea of um, it, um, Susan Jones gave me this line from Ohio State: "Is there an I in identity? To what extent mm -hmm. is there an individual experience?" given how many contexts and how many systems actually create how we even think about ourselves. So that's, I wrestle with that. But um, I, um, even having said that, um, I believe that multiracial people choose a range of identities for a range of reasons. And it's been my experience that so many times when people try to understand experiences or what can we do or what should we do, um, they focus on, tell us about them. Mm -hmm. um, I sometimes work with interracial couples uh, in groups about multiracial kids they're raising and they always want to focus on them. Tell us about them so we can understand them. And I think it's so interesting to, to turn historical and even current literature and learnings and insights onto ourselves. So that how do I perpetuate what we'll be talking about today? Mm -hmm. What do I believe about multiracial people? Because for what I believe about multiracial people, regardless of my racial ancestry, so I'm using me as an example, is going to affect how I work with them. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're so focused on tell us about them and not reflect on how do I, how do I show up in this whole thing? And how does that affect the experiences of the students, faculty or staff who are multiracial on my campus? Sure. You know, what that makes, it makes me think about that we, um, and we do this beyond multiracial people, is this, this desire to problematize um, others, right? So we focus on, um, um, how do we help them fit in? And there are multiracial people who haven't struggled with fit. There are some multiracial folks who do feel, you know, the struggle with fit. They, we pr problematize how do we learn about them rather than how do we learn about ourselves and our own reactions. We want to focus on the problem of the individuals and yet we don't want to focus on the structures and the systems and that's you know pretty much a thread i think that has run through all of this um, um you know so many parts of this conversation uh an interesting thing that um someone mentioned earlier and i want to get back to and that is this this whole concept of mono racism and how it um how it connects to this conversation of multiracial people. And um, 
You know, I, um, I, I find it a fascinating word. Prior to reading um, your book, um, Mark, the book that Mark and Charmaine edited and that Jessica has a chapter in, I don't know that I had heard that word before. And I, I love when I find a phrase or a word that I want to dig into. So um, Mark and Jessica, you, know, you want to talk about monoracial? Um, what, is it, what is it and how does it operate on campus for us? Yeah, I can start and then Jessica can jump in uh, because that's fascinating that you hadn't heard it before. Hadn't because heard. Um, yeah, I'm sort of credited with um, with my my mentor Kevin Nadal um, for coining this term in the academic literature in a chapter that came out in 2010. So just to think like, oh, it's been 11 Sorry. years now, <laughs> and and had not heard it. It's just we felt it was sort of picking up, but. I'm sure yeah. it has. I'm just, I'm, I, I, it's this administrative job. It just keeps me too busy. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's totally okay. Because, you know, I've received a, a good amount of pushback about whether this actually is a thing, whether monoracism exists. Um, and so uh, I really appreciated being able to partner and collaborate with Jessica and one of her doc students, um, Max Perea, um, on this chapter, really examining what is monoracism, right? And trying to get at that structural oppression. But when Kevin and I were doing this chapter, it's in a larger book, Daryl Wing Su's uh, 2010 edited volume on microaggression. So it was very much like this feels like the microaggressions that multiracial people are experiencing are part of something bigger. What is that bigger thing? And so we, you know, named it monoracism. Uh, other people might name it something else like monoracial racism uh, or monoracist something. I don't know. But um, so that's what the term we went with and kind of stuck with it and the, the ways that it's debated and questioned uh, feels as though that fit the, the, the sort of the definition of microaggressions and the, the conceptualization of microaggressions that uh, Sue was putting forward so well that we were like, okay, this is it. Like the people, you know, thinking it's not even a, a thing uh, is a microaggression in and of mm -hmm. itself. Um, so, uh, and then Jessica has been building on that with her work, uh, especially with critical uh, multiracial theory. So I'll turn it over to her. Thanks, Mark, and thanks for coining and theorizing the term. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know what to say about this, because in our book, we did offer the, the definition that um, Mark and his colleague offered originally, which I still very much adopt and put in a lot of my work. But within the chapter that we all wrote together, we also said, you know, maybe we also want to expand this thinking around monoracism a little bit so that, you know, multiracial people have been policed, their, their racial identity and, and their and them being racially ambiguous oftentimes has been policed and there've been terms put on them. And so do we really wanna do that with the racism, the monoracism that they might, they might um, encounter? And so we decided, no, we're just gonna add some tenants perhaps, some guiding, guiding thoughts that we have for monoracism. And some of those were around, you know, everyone is affected by monoracism. Some of those people are targets and those are people who may or may not identify as multiracial. Some of those people are the perpetrators of, of that monoracism. Multiracial people might internalize monoracism. Mm -hmm. um, it's very much being enacted on a horizontal level, a structural level, multiple levels. And so I don't know if that necessarily clarifies what it is, but I think that that's a, a, a good point is to actually make it a little bit more muddy. Um, the one other thing I will say is, you know, speaking of being able to talk to someone for days about something, I could talk to Mark and others about like, is monoracism a thing and the pushback that people may or may not receive around their scholarship, um, around these identities that are in borderlands, where I think it's really important for me to end this, this answer on, um, I do believe that monoracism is a thing, not only because I experience it and know others who do, or I see it on a daily basis, it's because there are I think we need to expand the definition of racism, right? I think a narrow, critical race theorists will say, a narrow definition of racism is only upholding white supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. It's perhaps, you know, the dominant understanding is that it affects black individuals, that it is overt, that we can see the harm that is done. Where if we start to think about racism as anti-blackness, as racist nativism, as mono-racism, as xenophobia, and it's all these intricate 
intersecting strands that are making the rope of racism, um, we are gonna have a, a whole lot of a easier, never will be easy, time <laughs> dismantling racism and white supremacy. And so that's why I wanna say like, monoracism is a thing and um, it, we have to acknowledge it alongside other racisms if we, if we wanna do anything, if we wanna make some change. Sure. You know, yeah, Can I, I think, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna, I was gonna jump in. Um, I did know about the concept. Um, and and uh, although I think Rochelle's uh, experience is not unique, I did know about it. And to be honest with you, I wasn't sure what to do with it for years. Um, I kept seeing it pop up and I didn't really pay attention to it. And I thought, no, oh, I don't know. Um, and uh, through working with Mark a lot and working with the chapter in the book, you know, I, I'm coming around to it. I understand it much more through the examples that people gave. And so that would be the, the advice I would give to folks is there is a certain, I'm not gonna say that that word is a, a jargon word, but we do use certain terms within any discipline as if everyone understands what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So I think with, particularly with monoracism or other emerging um, concepts that are coming out of the study of multiracial people's lives, um, it's helpful to ground them for folks. Um, it's not like we, we bear the responsibility for explaining it, but it's with through examples and different ways of saying things will help people understand and I think lessen resistance to concepts because um, through um, through the book and through more reading and interaction about yes like okay I, I'm getting this now and I'm seeing this as a valid form of not a valid form of repression but um, it's more legitimate in my mind as opposed to something I just want to fluff off because it's like yeah I don't think I get this. Um, it helps people by grounding it, I think, and repeating it and giving people's examples uh, through people's lived experience, but also systemic examples uh, really help people come around to understanding the nature of um, evolving nature of systems of oppression. Well, what I found is I resonated with the word immediately. I just, I don't know how I missed it. I even read Sue's book that you write on the microaggressions. I somehow, I must have just read it as something else, but I, um, I immediately resonated with it and thought it made sense. And it was a way of understanding, you know, these, um, I love Jessica's um, image of the rope, the different strands and this rope of, of racism and this rope of oppression. And I think that that's really, um, important. Now, so we defined monoracism. And then what I wanted to move this into is, and we also talked about microaggressions a little and that helping to us to see some of the monoracism. And I'm wondering if we could um, share with our viewers some of the examples of or um, microaggressions and harms that are faced by multiracial uh, individuals. Now, we don't have to necessarily um, I'm not saying give the examples, I'm saying explain to us what um, are some of the specific microaggressions that might be experienced by multiracial individuals. Jessica. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not on a campus, so my colleagues will definitely jump in and, and but I think misrecognition or assumptions of who people are um, based on phenotype, we're so visually, for folks who, who are, vision, are not visually impaired, can see, is so many triggers around race are based on just assumptions of how people look. So being misrepresented or misidentified or overlooked or invisible um, because people just assume, well, that's who you are and I don't have to pay attention to you. I don't have to ask you. I just assume who you are. And that mm -hmm. can play out in so many different ways or you know, who you assume is in your classroom and how do you respond to them. Uh, who do you uh, assume is uh, in a student organization and what their needs might be. So that's one thing I will throw out. Um, I, I will throw out one other and then I'll let Mark take it because I just build on Mark's work. So, <laughs> but one of the things that I found more recently that I think was more of a like um, maybe aha moment or something that I hadn't seen a lot in the literature before is that I was working with multiracial faculty and they experienced a microaggression that I termed as multiracial tokenization. So um, there's kind of some backstory here where some multiracial faculty members in this study, I think there was like 26 faculty members, um, many of them felt that they were racially ambiguous or racially palatable so that the institution could claim them as a person of color, but they weren't fully a person of color, right? So they might mm -hmm. enter a room and they weren't red, they were red as racially ambiguous, right? 
um, and non-threatening. And that says a lot about what it means to be a person, a monoracial person of color, so on and so forth. You can read some of these articles if you want to know more. But um, I also want to stress that being racially ambiguous or palatable did not necessarily mean that they had white heritage. So there's some complexity here. Um, but with these individuals, they said, hey, the institution knows. They know that I'm mixed race or multiracial or any of the above. And they know that I'm racially ambiguous and racially, racially palatable. So they're gonna claim me as a token for diversity and they're gonna put me on these diversity committees. They're gonna put me on these other committees and they're gonna say, hey, look, we have, a, we have a person of color there. We've done our work. And that is really being used by the institution. The other component of that, the microaggression really comes from not only this, a mass amount of service work that they have to do, perhaps more than people that, or all other faculty in the academy, um, but that they also are not being taken seriously by the institution. So there's not really a multiracial support group or outlets to um, think through or process their multiracial identity. They're having other microaggressions happen to them, multiracial microaggressions happen to them or with them at the same time. So that's what I would say is multiracial tokenization. Sure. And Mark. Yeah, no, these are excellent examples. Uh, I think that, um, yeah, and they all kind of connect, um, but some additional ones would just be, you know, the questioning of racial authentic authenticity or uh, not necessarily uh, being made to feel enough or not enough uh, of any particular group. Uh, the, the question about, you know, the what are you types of questions, uh, these show up throughout the literature, but in people's experiences, even if it's not the what are you question, but what's your background, what's your ethnicity, there's something about multiracial people that people feel they can ask questions. Uh, and then the responses like, oh, how did that happen? Or how do your parents meet that you probably wouldn't ask uh, somebody who uh, is monoracial, not to say you wouldn't, but sometimes it doesn't happen. Um, and then just this uh, denial of multiracial reality. And so, you know, sometimes talking about these experiences and people saying it's, it's not a big deal or the whole questioning about monoracism. Uh, and then uh, something that I've been working on with a colleague, uh, Carly Ford at Penn State, uh, building on some of Jessica's work too, is this like erasure, multiracial erasure. Uh, and we're seeing that a lot with data um, representation, uh, how institutions represent uh, their multiracial students or two or more students. And so that can be a, a sort of institutionalized, um, more macro level aggression against uh, multiracial people who are, you know, fit in different ways to different categories to meet the institution's needs, uh, kind of like what Jessica was saying. So those are some additional examples. So we're seeing that more and more as people are trying to count right? You know, like count. And I've now started seeing campuses um, identify if they're talking about their BIPOC, BIPOC folks or their um, folks, their faculty of color, let's say. And then they have, they provide a number for the faculty of color, provide a huge number for the white faculty. And then they say, and then we have um, um, two or more races. And they don't know what to do with this accounting that they've um, created, because they're not gonna do anything with the data, but they're just showing it. And so I'm thinking that really is some high level erasure for me, because they're saying, you just don't count, even though we're counting you, we don't know what to do with you and we're not gonna do anything with those numbers and we're not gonna explore it, but we're putting it out there. And, I, and I've been trying to figure out what the thinking behind that is. And I guess I should just, stop thinking about it and tell them to stop doing it, you know, like, or to make, or to do something with it, so. Rochelle, can I also add that the, the early literature on multiracial identity came out of the counseling field. Mm -hmm. So the assumption was, if you're multiracial, you're confused. And I think, although there is some, that echoes less now, I think it's still an assumption that multiracial people are confused about who they are. And as Mark kind of alluded to, they, um, they always wanna talk about their identity or I wanna talk about their identity because it must be an issue for them. That's also an assumption. And then one other thing I had recently, I was talking to a faculty colleague and I said, I'm hearing all this hesitancy from multiracial graduate students about their work. I said, I do not understand it. 
I don't understand why they aren't confident. Why aren't they embracing their work? Why aren't they going forward with the foundations they have? And she said, Charmaine, they're getting beat up all the time. Mm -hmm. That their work on a multiracial topic is still not seen as legitimate and relevant. And that was an eye-opening moment. I see Mark uh, nodding quite a bit. I'm sure Mark and Jessica advise graduate students, but she said, what you're not seeing is they are still being questioned on whether or not this is a legitimate topic to be pursuing. Not only is it legitimate, is it important enough? You know, there are these other issues that we should be exploring around race, and this is not a, an important issue. So, um, yeah, finding that um, fascinating. Um, yeah, can I jump in? I mean, it's often yeah. framed as a distraction, mm-hmm. right? Rochelle, when you're talking about the, it's not as important, but that, that, and so that does build up for graduate students, you know, both masters and doctoral level as they're thinking about, they're engaging in classroom conversations, you know, where do they do their research or where do they focus their attention? And they're constantly questioned uh, by their peers, by faculty themselves, especially faculty of color uh, can, can perpetuate this and be questioning. So I think that that's really important. Charmaine, thanks for bringing it up that we just kind of think about how we do support uh, maybe push, we can push and further our graduate students thinking, but not to the de- their detriment, right? Not till they're exhausted and they move on to other topics. Um, there's also this sense that they don't want to be pigeonholed uh, to only being able to study multiracial things, especially if it's their own identity. Uh, I'd love to hear Jessica's point on this as she moved, she said in the beginning, she moved on to other topics. Uh, and so I don't know, you know, why uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm not putting you on the spot, Jessica. I would just love to hear any thoughts you have, especially as you've done research on uh, multiracial faculty. Yeah, thank you for that, Mark, and also Charmaine for bringing that up. Um, I agree. I was that grad student, and uh, I try and create an environment now where students don't don't necessarily have to question with any topic. Like, is this valid enough? Right? Is this important enough? Um, I, I, I will just, I just moved on because I felt like I was getting stale in my research. This, I mean, I just need to go back to grad school. Like that's the other <laughs> message. That's the other message if grad students are listening. Like, yes, pers- you, your topic is valid and also just love this time because at no point again, will you have dedicated years to read and, and learn. So I think it was just that I was getting a little bit stale. I would love, love, love to return to the topic at another time. Um, the other thing I will say too is um, I'm working with a student right now who's thinking through doing their dissertation on, on multiraciality. And I think it kind of goes back to why I stopped doing it or moved on rather is that I think it's important for people who want to pursue this research as grad students or beyond or before that they also do think about it in innovative ways. And that's not to say the topic. It's more so of the like, okay, we are a little bit, we're removed from the identity development strictly era, right? And so how are we, how are we researching this in ways that are looking at, at structures and systems, but also like really, really ha- uh, has implications for coalition building across identities and experiences, right? So rather than perhaps like absolutely focusing on multiracial experiences, but then also like, how are these policies and procedures upholding biological notions of race? Which is like, harkens back to eugenics and and just a very outdated understanding of race, right? So I'm just saying that I validate and would love all, all students to think through this topic, but how might we do it in a way that like really disrupts these larger systems and ide- these dominant ideologies that once again are upholding white supremacy? Well, that is the question of the day, um, isn't it? How do we you know, disrupt white supremacy in general? And how do we change systems, you know, like which has, um, which is at the root, but being someone who tries to think um, that, you know, I still think that there's a lot of work to do around racial identity, you know, to actually get to these models that explore it um, more completely, less dualistically, um, 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 both within models and outside of models, because I think for so many of us, that's helped us understand 
ourselves or others, but just a little piece. It wasn't supposed to be the entire answer, right? Um, and we need to look at systems and we need to um, deal with race and racism in some very different ways um, that have only that have been posed. You know, this is all we have. It's not all we have. It's all we have right now, right? And and then we have these people, you know, like you three doing some pretty amazing work in some very different ways, you know, around these issues. So I want to go to um, racial identity theories. I want to talk about, and it, and it might go back to something that you said, Charmaine, earlier when you were talking about um, these first dealing with multiracial um, theories and concepts we're dealing um, in counseling. And counseling was saying that um, they're confused. Well, I would back that up a little bit and say maybe some of the people, because of how they were harmed, were going in and saying, I'm confused, I'm hurt, I'm all of these things. And so counseling did what it was doing, their understanding of it. But it was these often monoracial people who were interpreting the hurt and the confusion and then putting it out in a, a pretty narrow way. And which might, you know, in some ways talk about, you know, racial identity theory. So they've historically ignored um, the uniqueness of multiracial individuals. Um, and how is development processes both similar and different from multiracial individuals? Now, Charmaine, I'm going to throw this one to you first, because <laughs> I know this is where you um, sort of began your work mm -hmm. and how it just has changed so much mm -hmm. in the time that, um, that you've explored it. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's evolving and it continues to evolve and it always will. And that's what makes it so exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it is that both. And I, I think it's also important to understand any theory in its historical context. So that counseling piece was one of the first things that was there. When I went up to research multiracial identity in the ninth, late 1980s, my lit review, I had to go to the counseling literature and I went to black and white theories because there just really wasn't a whole lot there. And I think the counseling theories provided a certain framework, but what I found were people were um, extrapolating from that framework all over the place. Mm -hmm. So the larger message became not the folks who were in those studies, they sought um, counseling services for a reason, but that the larger image of people being confused became the narrative for a long time, I feel, for multiracial people. Um, I think the, um, the evolution of, of multiracial theory is just a natural outgrowth of any discipline. So as opposed to being an exception to the rule of um, identity development, I think by looking at multiracial, the experiences of diverse multiracial people and not just folks who are black and white or not folks with white ancestry, but a real range of multiracial people really advances the study of racial identity development. Um, that said, I think there are certain things that may um, be of heightened salience to multiracial folks. For example, having uh, parents who are of two different racial groups, again, realizing those groups were sustained by centuries of oppression, but we still use them, we still check the boxes. Uh, at least my parents did, and I still check the boxes. So it's that dilemma of working within systems of oppression, even as we try to dismantle them but um, perhaps being exposed to different cultures in their own home, um, very varying levels of acceptance, that ambiguity that I think we've all spoken to about appearance, those aren't necessarily unique to multiracial folks, but they highlight um, uh, those areas that we can look at and then say, okay, how does this relate to other populations? I know plenty of black folks who are racially ambiguous in terms of uh, appearance and, and, mm -hmm. and folks from other quote racial groups. So racial ambiguity is not um, just relate, um, in relation to multiracial people, but for everybody, but by looking at their experiences, we might know um, more about the experiences of being um, misread. I also think there are very, there are fewer populations who are, uh, it's been put on them to be the bridge over the racial divide <laughs> or that the, the new face of America. So that is somewhat of a unique aspect, I think, for multiracial folks. Um, I think by looking at multiracial identity, it introduces or highlights other concepts that I think are true for other groups, like malleability and liminality and situational identities. So uh, we know from the involving uh, scholarship on multiracial people that these are new concepts or concepts that have perhaps not been fully investigated for other populations. So I think um, it's a both and, that there are unique aspects and those unique aspects can then push 
our study of identity theory, racial identity theory across multiple groups. The last thing I'll say is um, I, I really like a lot of what Jessica has been saying, and it kind of also follows my arc of thinking. Um, I think it, looking at any kind of identity development, it encourages us to think less about identity occurring in context, but through context. And those contexts are not just what I experience in my family or not just how I process things, but all the systems that I encounter on campus and beyond in my community, uh, in, the, in the nation that inform how I understand my own experience. For, and, and those will always change. Like what about immigration and naturalization now? And what does that say for folks who are experiencing identity development in this era? Um, so I think those will always be changing and that's why we always have to study it. And that's what makes it exciting. I don't think we'll ever get there of totally understanding identity development in any group because that our understanding of the groups and the experience of those groups are always changing. And that's why there's always room for new theories. So that's what I will say, but I hope I answered your question. I think you shared some stuff that, you know, of course, let me go off on some little thing in my head saying, oh, I want to explore that more. And we're getting close to time, believe it or not. I feel like we've just scratched the surface. Um, I want to I want to give you an opportunity to do something. Um, I love the work that um, Gloria Zandula has done, you know, around, um, well, let me put the period in another place. I love the work that Gloria Zandula has done, period. Um, but um, one of the things that stands out to me is she so famously discussed the challenges and the joys of living in the borderlands. And so I want to um, give you an opportunity because so often when we're talking about um, um, uh, marginalized people or oppressed people that we we focus on the challenges and the issues and I think it's as, as important that we talk about the joys and the um, those experiences um, that move us from this tragic narrative that people um, like to explore. Um, so I want to talk about that, but I want to give you um, an option of what to respond to. So that you can also talk about how that's true for multiracial people, this, these challenges and joys of living in the in the borderlands. But I also want to give you um, a chance to just say your final thoughts. And so it can either be about that or something that you wish that we were able to get to um, in this conversation. Um, um, Markham, I want to know if you'd like to start us off there. Sure, thank you. Uh, there's a lot to try to think about. Well, how do I close all this and bring things together? Because uh, what Charmaine ended with, or all of what Charmaine said was, I mean, that's, yeah, a lot. Please check out her chapter in the book if you haven't already. Um, when she led, left off with identity, uh, not in context, but through context. And it yep. just made me think, I was earlier in the conversation, I was saying uh, context is through identity, right? Um, and so their identity really is the mediator. So there's something there. And I think that's important for us to think about when we do research, especially qualitative research and access experience through people's narratives. Uh, I think that that can uh, be difficult to understand what's context versus what's identity because we're it's through the lens. Um, but also check out uh, Jessica's uh, walking interview protocol if you haven't done so as well, because uh, that's, uh, yeah, very innovative. So um, I'll talk a little bit about the joys. I think it's a tricky, uh, it's very tricky because when you asked about how unique uh, multiracial identity might be compared to other racial identity theories, I, I want there to be an understanding there are some unique um, sort of aspects but unique does not mean special, because uh, that's often a critique is that for somehow somebody claiming being multiracial, that they're trying to be special or be unique in some way, different from some other group. Uh, so that that's often a trigger for people. Um, and I don't know what to do with that. So I often mm -hmm. stick with the marginalization. I stick with the negative experiences because when we go into the positive, we're often critiqued for that, saying we're better than others um, or that, you know, where you're, yeah, it's all complicated. But I think some of the joys that I've seen uh, in my work and or even experienced is just, uh, 
being recognized. Uh, I think that sometimes that's being recognized by a monoracial or monoethnic group that we claim belonging in, or it's being recognized by building community with other multiracial or mixed folks that um, have some sort of sense of uh, yeah, connectedness there. Um, and then just seeing ourselves represented in the literature, like Jessica said, what drove her is to make sure that others are, uh, you know, see themselves uh, being represented and validated. It's a, it's definitely a source of joy uh, that I've seen, and I hope uh, as my work or I've become a more, you know, seasoned scholar in this area, I've transitioned to making sure other people have opportunities to be able to uh, research and and publish in this area as well. So thanks, Jessica. Yes, um, I can go quickly. I think there's a class starting outside, so there might be a little noise. But um, I, I echo everything that Mark said and that everybody has, everything everyone has said uh, the last 55 minutes. But um, one, of the, one of the joys is something that just happened is like the continual learning that I'm, I have within community with other multiracial people. So Mark saying like, unique doesn't mean special. That was just like an aha moment for me. And I have learned so much from Mark and others. And I just really appreciate that. And I think um, I now hopefully create that space of support and understanding for graduate students or other individuals who identify as multiracial and are now, whether or not they're researching multiraciality, but are trying to think through their own identity. And so that has been a joy for me. And I think a joy just to be in community with other mixed race, multiracial individuals who live in the borderlands. Um, the one other thing I will say is that I do believe that living in the borderlands creates a unique, perhaps not special, but a unique consciousness, right? Of really having to, or getting to sense and feel and observe things in all sorts of le levels and sides. And I think that that can be, um, it can be heavy, but it also is such a joy to be able to sense and see in a way that um, brings beauty and understanding into your life. So that, that has been a joy for myself and I know some other participants in studies that I've embarked on. You know, Jessica, that was so, um, so powerful to me what you just said in the sense that um, um, my being biracial, my understanding that helped me understand my being bisexual. It was like, oh, I got that. You know, I get this. I understand this in some ways that I don't know that I would have got as easily, as quickly, as as uh, as deeply, perhaps. And so, um, what you said really resonated with me. So, thank you for that, Charmaine. I want to um, give you this opportunity to. Um, I think just quickly on the borderlands. I think we're renaming identity and experiences from not being confused to being empowered. Mm-hmm. And, and, and multiracial people are not the problem, as Jessica has been emphasizing, it's the systems. Mm -hmm. The borders are what oppression has created. And our experiences will dismantle those with other people. My final, final thought is, um, I, I, like Jessica, had moved away from multiracial topics and, and really was, I had been delving into intersectionality and having a blast doing that. Um, I came back to the table, as I like to think of it, through the multiracial experiences book. And I found that there's a whole lot more people at that table. And what they're saying is so interesting and so um, helpful to me. There you go. And um, so it was, it's been lovely to be at a big and broad table that is still expanding. Um, and even as we do that, I will leave you with the thought that we are living and working and researching in contested times using contested topics. So there will always be resistance, but um, with resistance, there is community and strength. So I wish anyone going into this field or continuing in this field or returning to this field, the community and strength that I have gotten from my work in this area. Thank you, Charmaine. I am so grateful for all of your time today. I mean, Charmaine, Mark, Jessica, I mean, I loved how you um, filled up my brain you know, and I have lots to think about tonight and for the week and for the, the month and the year. So thank you um, for that. I, I am so grateful for your time, for your contributions and for this conversation. I know that this episode is gonna be turned around and aired rather quickly. So I wanna send a heartfelt appreciation to the amazing and unflappable Nat Ambrosi who does our behind the scenes productions. Thanks, Nate. 
If you're listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our web website at studentaffairsnow.com and scroll to the bottom of the homepage to add your email to our MailChimp list. And while you're there, check out our archives. Um, our, our, you'll also find in the newsletter that comes some other resources, you know, like uh, we'll talk about this book and we'll talk about some videos and other um, resources that our um, panelists today had. Um, if you found this conversation helpful, how could you not? Please share it on your social media platforms and share it with your colleagues and your students. Also, please subscribe to the podcast and invite others to subscribe. Share it on social media or leave a five-star review. It really helps conversations like this reach more folks and build a learning community. Finally, I want to give a heartfelt shout out to our sponsors. We really appreciate your support. Support. Hey, Stylus Publishing. Stylus is proud to be a sponsor for Student Affairs Now podcast. Browse their student affairs, diversity, and professional development titles at styluspub.com. Use the promo code Student Affairs Now for 30% off all books plus free shipping. Hey, free shipping. You can also find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Stylus Pub. EverFi is our other sponsor today. How will your institution rise to reach today's socially conscious generation? These students rate commitments to safety, well-being, and inclusion as important as academics and extracurriculars. It's time to reimagine the work of student affairs as an investment and not an expense. For over 20 years, EverFi has been the trusted partner for 1,500 colleges and universities with nine efficacy studies behind our courses you will have confidence that you're using the standard of care for student safety and well-being with the results to prove it. Transform the future of your institution and the communities you serve. Learn more at everfi.com forward slash student affairs now. Again, I'm Rochelle Pope. Thanks to Jessica and Mark and Charmaine and to everyone who's watching and listening. Um, John Lewis has been on my mind for the last few months. And so I wanna say in his honor, Folks, make good trouble.